Hey, welcome to episode number 77 of More Than Bread, the podcast that kind of revels in the value of Scripture and the vitality, vitality that it brings to our lives. My name is Dan. I'm a pastor and your host, and, and this episode is going to start a bit differently with a story, one of my favorite stories, and, and then after the story, we'll dive into Mark chapter 3. Ernest Gordon was a fun-loving sailor from Scotland who became a company commander of the 93rd Highlanders during World War II. His story starts with these words. It says, I was lying at the morgue end of the death house, being on slightly higher and therefore less muddy terrain. This end was the most desirable section of the long, slummy bamboo hut, which was supposed to be a hospital, but had long since given up any pretense of being a place to shelter the sick. It was simply a place where men came to die. I don't know if anyone listening to me has come to the place where you feel like all that you have left to life is death, but I know there are at least a few of us who feel like we're hanging on at the end of our hope. And your hesitancy, maybe, towards diving into the Word of God is that you think it's all it's going to do is, is give you more to do, like it's just all about what I got to do in order to win God's favor. But in reality, so much of Scripture is all about telling us, helping us find life. Ernest Gordon was captured by the Japanese during World War II and assigned to the building of the Burma Siam Railway. Each day, Gordon joined a work detail of prisoners to build a track bed through low-lying swampland. Prisoners, giving even the appearance of slowing down in their work, were beaten to death or decapitated on the spot. Thousands of men simply dropped dead from disease, malnutrition, and, and exhaustion. And before the track was laid, 80,000 prisoners died. That's 393 deaths per mile. Naked except for loincloths, the men worked under a broiling sun and often 120 degree plus heat. Their bodies stung by insects, their feet cut and bruised by sharp stones. Ernest could feel himself gradually wasting away from a combination of beriberi, worms, malaria, dysentery, dysentery typhoid, and, and diphtheria. He was too weak to fight off bedbugs and flies. All the illusion of being in control of his own fate, all the illusion of being able to save himself had been stripped away. He mastered the strength to write a final letter to his parents, and then he laid back to die. But something was happening in the prison camp. For most of the war, it had been dog-eat-dog, even amongst the prisoners. Law of the jungle, every man for himself. Few people cared about anyone other than themselves. Your death simply meant more food for me. Theft was rampant. Men lived like animals with with hate and self-preservation, the only motivations for life. But something was happening in the prison camp, something that Gordon would call the miracle on the River Kauai. It all began when Angus died. Angus was a a Scottish prisoner in the camp, and when he died, nobody could believe it. He was strong, one of those they expected to be the last to die. And Actually, it wasn't the fact of his death that shocked the men, but the reason he died. They, They pieced together his story after he died. See, the, the Scottish prisoners of war had a buddy system. Their buddy was called their mucker, and it was your responsibility to make sure your mucker lived. In the I-first culture of the camp, honestly, most didn't take the system very serious, but Angus did, and his mucker was dying. When someone stole his mucker's blanket, Angus gave him his own, telling his mucker that he had just come across an extra one somewhere. <laughs> 
Likewise, every mealtime, Angus would get his rations and take them to his friend, stand over him, and force him to eat them, again stating that he had just been able to get extra food. Angus was going to do anything and everything he could to see that his buddy got what he needed to recover. But as Angus's mucker began to recover, Angus collapsed, slumped over, and died. The doctors discovered that he died of starvation complicated by exhaustion. In other words, he had given up all of his own food and shelter. He had given everything he had, even his own life, for his mucker. The story of his sacrifice made an incredible mark on the camp. As words circulated of the reason for Angus McGillivray's death, that the feel of the camp, that the culture of the camp began to change. Suddenly, men began to take the focus off themselves and put it on others. They started giving themselves away, being generous, helping each other. They began to pool their talents. One was a violin maker, another an orchestra leader, another cabinet maker, another a professor. The men began a university, a hospital, and a library system. And Soon the camp had an orchestra full of homemade instruments and and the orchestra played every Sunday in a church worship service that was so powerful and so compelling that even the Japanese guards attended. You know what they called the church? They called it the church without walls. The place was transformed, all, all but smothered, loved, revived, all because one man named Angus was willing to give his life for someone else. Angus was willing to take himself out of the center of his life. Do you realize how difficult that is? How difficult it is for us to remove ourselves from the center of our hearts, the center of our lives. Do you realize how difficult it is for us to care for others more than we care for ourselves? But here's what I believe. If we want to find life and actually help others find life, we need to get ourselves out of the center of our lives and let Jesus, let the heart of Jesus be our center, right? We've known people who have left an eye-shaped mark on the world. It doesn't leave the world a better place. Makes a mess. But we've also known people who make a glorious mark in the world when Jesus is at the center of their lives. But it isn't easy, is it? Mark 3 gives us a brief glimpse of the journey of taking myself out of the center of my life so that I can leave a a gospel Jesus kind of mark in the world. It's the journey of going from foe, enemy, foe, to fan, to family. It's when we become family that we thrive and make a difference in our world. So listen as I read Mark chapter 3 from the New Living Translation. And let's see if we can kind of pull out this journey from foe to family, to foe to fan, to family. It says, Jesus went into the synagogue again and noticed a man with a deformed hand. Since it was the Sabbath, Jesus' enemies watched him closely. If he healed the man's hand, they planned to accuse him of working on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with a deformed hand, come and stand in front of everyone. And then he turned to his critics and asked, does the law permit good deeds on the Sabbath or is it a day for doing evil? Is this a day to save life or destroy it? But they wouldn't answer him. He looked at them angrily and was deeply saddened by their hard hearts. We'll we'll talk about hard hearts in the next few episodes, actually. Then he said to the man, hold out your hand. So the man held out his hand and it was restored. And at once the Pharisees, now if you don't know this, my words, Pharisees were were, kind of like a a certain type of religious leaders. It was kind of a combination of religious leader and political leader all wrapped up into one. And and oftentimes we see the Pharisees against Jesus. 
At once the Pharisees, verse 6, went away and met with the supporters of Herod to plot how to kill Jesus. Jesus went out to the lake with his disciples, and a large crowd followed him. They came from all over Galilee, Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, from east of the Jordan River, and even from as far north as Tyre and Sidon. The news about his miracles had spread far and wide, and vast numbers of people came to see him. Jesus instructed his disciples to have a boat ready so the crowd would not crush him. He had healed many people that day, so all the sick people eagerly pushed forward to touch him. And whenever those possessed by evil spirits caught sight of him, the the spirits would throw them to the ground in front of him, shrieking, You are the Son of God! But Jesus sternly commanded the spirits not to reveal who he was. After Jesus went up on a mountain and called out the ones he wanted to go with him, and, and they came to him, and then he appointed 12 of them and called them his apostles. They were to accompany him, and he would send them out to preach, giving them authority to cast out demons. And these are the twelve that he chose. Simon, who he named Peter, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, but Jesus nicknamed them the sons of thunder, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, Thaddeus, Simon, and Judas Iscariot, who later betrayed him. One time, Jesus entered a house, and the crowds began to gather again. Soon he and his disciples couldn't even find time to eat, and when his family heard what was happening, they tried to take him away. He's out of his mind, they said, they meaning Jesus' family. Jesus' family, think about this, Mary, who who gave virgin birth to the Son of God, Mary and her, her, her kids came to take Jesus away because they thought he was out of his mind. Verse 22, but the teachers of religious law who had arrived from Jerusalem said, he's possessed by Satan, the prince of demons. That's where he gets the power to cast out demons. Jesus called them over and responded with an illustration. How can Satan cast out Satan, he asked. A kingdom divided by civil war will collapse. Similarly, a a family splintered by feuding will fall apart. And if Satan is divided and fights against himself, how can he stand? He'd never survive. Let let me illustrate this further, Jesus said. Who is powerful enough to enter the house of a strong man and plunder his goods? Only someone even stronger, someone who could tie him up and then plunder his house. I, I tell you the truth, all sin and blasphemy can be forgiven, but anyone who blasphemes the Holy Spirit will never for, be forgiven. This is a sin with eternal consequences. He told them this because they were saying he, meaning Jesus, is possessed by an evil spirit. Then Jesus' mother and brothers came to him. They stood outside and sent word for him to come out and talk with him. There was a a crowd sitting around Jesus, and someone said, Your mother and your brothers are outside asking for you. Jesus replied, Who is my mother? Who are my brothers? And then he looked around at those around him, and he said, Look, these are my mothers and brothers. These are my mother and brothers. This is my family, in other words, Jesus is saying. Anyone who does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. So Jesus heals a man on the Sabbath, and the Pharisees begin to plot how to kill Jesus. Like, that's it. I can't take any more. We should just kill him now. And I don't know what you're thinking. Really? He healed a hand on the Sabbath, and you want to kill him? Really? But you see, healing on the Sabbath was not really the issue. In fact, there's a saying that when it comes to the issues that divide us, whether they be political issues, race, racial issues, relational, economic, or even spiritual issues, the issue is rarely the issue. The issue is usually control. 
These Pharisees were foes of Jesus because they saw Jesus as a threat to their control. And the reality is that the foe issue, the defining characteristic of foes is is control. I, I can't move from being a foe, being an enemy of God, until I'm willing to give up control or at least now acknowledge that I'm I'm not nearly as in control as I think I am. I remember a number of years ago, I was talking to my daughters about their upcoming baptism. Sarah and Katie were thinking deeply and asking good questions like, how do we know that there really is a God? And I just remember I looked at them and I thought, you are how I know. I mean, I'm truly amazed that in our world today, intelligent, highly educated men and women can look at the intricate design of the universe and call it a product of time and chance. People who would never buy a lottery ticket because they call it a tax on the mathematically challenged can look at things like the human eye or the brain and say it's chance, like like we hit the jackpot of all creative jackpots. How can they not know, I wonder? And yet what God says in Romans 1 is that we suppress the truth because of our pride. See, God is saying, they know, I know they know, and they know they know, and they know that I know that they know. But what really is going on here is that smart people are denying my existence and rolling creation so that they can set themselves up to take my place. John Hedinga, in his book, Follow Me, says, do you realize the options we'd have if we were to wipe away the fingerprints of God? If we say there never was a creator, do you see the enormous opportunity that would give us, we would be in charge. No higher authority, no accountability, no limits. You know, I think in all my years of teaching the Bible, of listening to the Spirit unpack the Word, of learning from it and and leaning into it, the hardest theme isn't sex or finances. It, it's the concept of surrender. I mean, people treat you like you're from Mars when you start talking about living life according to someone else's agenda. Whenever I talk about letting loose of the control that's necessary to actually go further with God, to go deeper with God, I I do so with some nervousness because when people settle the control issue, crazy things can happen. Decisions get made that can rearrange and change our lives, decisions that make people shake their heads. But then at the same time, I realize that I've never known someone who sold out for Jesus and then came to the end of their lives and said, oh, I wish I'd kept a little bit more control for myself. I wish I would have disobeyed God a few more times, followed my own path. So when it comes to control, there's a, a little bit of foe <laughs> in, in all of us. Even if we call ourselves followers of Jesus, where are you fighting God for control today? In the next scene of Mark 3, we see the next step of the journey from foe to family. In the middle step, we become a fan of Jesus. Jesus went out to the lake, it says in verses 7 through 10, with his disciples and a large crowd followed. They came from all over the place and and Jesus instructed his disciples to have a boat ready so the crowd wouldn't crush him. He, He healed many people that day, so all the sick people eagerly pushed forward to touch him. Now, don't miss this. You you don't have to give up all your control to become a fan of Jesus. In fact, fans can quickly turn to foes, but what turns a foe into a fan is an unmet need. See, the defining characteristic of a fan is, is I have a need. What is it that draws the crowds to Jesus? He He's healing diseases no medicine can touch to casting out demons that no one had the power to fight, giving hope to those who had lost hope. And isn't that what a a miracle is. 
It's our name for what happens when a need that couldn't be met gets met. And this news about the miracles of Jesus spread and it drew crowds and crowds and crowds. It it drew fans of Jesus. Are you a fan of Jesus? You have an unmet need. No, No one and nothing has been able to meet that need and you're hoping for a miracle. But if you don't find it, you'll probably look elsewhere. Now, now, there's good news and bad news for fans of Jesus. First, the good news, time and time again, those who followed Jesus were just blown away by how much he loved the crowds. If, if you've come to this podcast and you feel like you're part of a nameless crowd with unmet needs, you can't begin to know the unimaginable magnitude of Jesus' love for you. But here's the bad news. If you're just a fan, you're missing the heart of the life that Jesus has for you. And if you're just a fan, you could easily become a foe because it's still at least at least in part about you. You're, you're still pretty close to the center of your life. I'm not saying that you can't, that I can't, that we can't come to Jesus with our unmet needs. I, I'm simply saying that's not all there is. Jesus loves the fans in the crowd, the fans in the stands, but the true life that he offers is for family. So let me just ask you to look inside for a moment. Have you settled for being a fan of Jesus. If Jesus said no to your unmet needs, if Jesus said all you get is me, would that be enough? If Jesus said it's not about what I give you, it's about you going on mission with me, would that be okay? In the next scenes of Mark 3, we'll see what it takes to move from foe to fan to family. As we move on to Mark 3.13, where it says afterwards, Jesus went up on a mountain and called the ones he wanted to go with him. And they came to him and he, he appointed them and sent them out. He, he, he gave them the authority to cast out demons. We need to understand this isn't just a backstage pass for an excited fan. This is a calling to be with him, to be on mission with him, to be family. We'll hit that one in the next episode. But for now, let me read again just the the first part of Mark chapter 3, verses 1 through 12 from the message paraphrase, and then pray for you. It says, then he went back in the meeting place where he found a man with a crippled hand. The Pharisees, these are foes for the most part of Jesus. The Pharisees had their eyes on Jesus to see if he would heal them, heal him, hoping to catch him in a Sabbath violation. He said to the man with a crippled hand, stand here where we can see you. Then he spoke to the people, what kind of action, what kind of action suits the Sabbath best, doing good or doing evil, helping people or leaving the helpless? And, and nobody said a word. He looked them in the eye, one after another, angry now, furious at their hard-nosed religion. He said to the man, hold out your hand. He held it out, and it was as good as new. The Pharisees got out as fast as they could, sputtering about how they would join forces with Herod's followers and ruin Jesus. So Jesus went off with his disciples to the sea to get away, but a huge crowd, these are the fans, fans in the stands, they're looking for something from Jesus. A huge crowd from Galilee trailed after them, also from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, across the Jordan, around Tyre and Sidon, swarms of people who had heard the reports and had come to see for themselves. He told his disciples to get a boat ready so he wouldn't be trampled by the crowd. He healed many people. And now everyone who had something wrong was pushing and shoving to get near and touch him. Father God, I pray that that as we listen to your word, that you would place a hunger in our hearts by your spirit, that we would have a desire to be more than foes, even more than fans, 
that, that you would move us to a place of deeply desiring to be a part of your family. God, I pray for each person who really wrestles with control. God, I ask that you would give them the courage and the conviction to surrender control. That they would know that in some way, shape, or form, just like those those people in the prison camp, that you would do a great work simply by, by getting them out of the center of their own lives. That you would change people around them, that you would change them and God, I pray that we would not be consumers of the kingdom of God, but that we would be part of the team. And I ask these things in the name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen.